Welcome to The Teaching Curve, a podcast exploring the pedagogy of global politics and international relations. Produced under the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative of the International Studies Association and made available through ISA's Professional Resource Center. I'm Jamie Free, Associate Provost and Professor of Global Politics at Bridgewater College. Each episode of The Teaching Curve is a conversation with a thoughtful and engaged teacher of international studies. The goal? to celebrate and inspire pedagogical creativity by asking great teachers to reflect on how they do what they do. Listening to experts deconstruct their expertise is one of the best ways that those of us who aspire to similar levels of proficiency to chart our own paths towards successful teaching. This is especially the case when the experts are open, honest, and truly invested in others finding the pedagogies that will make them successful. Such openness is personified by Dr. Patrick James, Dean's Professor of International Relations at the Dornside College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences at the University of Southern California in the United States. Pat has served as the president of the International Studies Association. He's the recipient of numerous Distinguished Scholar Awards, including this year, the Distinguished Scholar Award from ISA's Active Learning and International Affairs section. Our conversation covers how to involve students in their own learning, both on a daily basis in class and through frequent and meaningful course evaluations. How fiction can be used to make abstract IR concepts more accessible. And the value for students and faculty of stepping out of traditional modes of learning for more active and imaginative engagement with IR material. So Dr. Pat James, welcome to the Teaching Curve. So happy to have you here to have conversations about your wisdom about teaching. Jamie, I'm honored and uh, and can't thank you enough for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here today and uh, look forward to interacting with you. Terrific. So um, the question we always start with, because we're trying to frame things for the audience, is to get a little bit of an idea of your institution and what your role is there. And the best way to do that, I find, is for you have you talk a little bit about who your students are. And that lets us know about you and them and the institution. So tell us a little bit about your students. Sure. Uh, I've been at the University of Southern California for 17 years, fight on, and uh, enjoyed every minute of it. The students are one of the best things about being here. And I mean that at all levels, from those who enter in to the freshman year, all the way through to PhDs. And I've been pretty active at both levels, uh, undergraduate and graduate. The students I would describe as absolutely first-rate, motivated. Uh, I'm very proud also in particular of the way students at all levels have adapted to the challenges of the pandemic, which are hard enough for people who are already established in life. Students are bright, creative, and they react well to efforts on my part, partially successful, I hope, at least in innovative and active learning. They are very good at moving beyond the traditional model, where I'm very inspired by Carl Wyman's uh, science education initiative. Briefly, in Wyman's world, we need to get away from a traditional standard lecture format and engage with students in a multiple number of formats, including ways where they initiate. So I'd sum up my students as bright and talented and motivated enough to be leaders. I tend to see my students at all levels as leaders in the making. Very proud of those who graduated, for instance, gone on to become professors themselves, uh, either under my direction here at USC or on other campuses. 
And I can't say enough about how my students have shaped me in terms of the things I've chosen for active learning, innovations, if you will, uh, that would be perhaps of greater interest over and beyond my own campus. Experiments, if you will, work best with, call it, if you will, active subjects who are more than just that themselves. And I just can't say enough good things about the talents, but also the work ethic collectively of our mm. students. So they, one of the reasons maybe I'm sitting here with you, arguably, is them. So that's really interesting. I, I, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the um, willingness to engage with a diversity of perspectives on teaching and interactions with faculty members. That, that makes it much easier to take some risks in the classroom over time. Um, to be able to try things out with them and know that they will still follow along um, and, and let you know if it's working or not. That, that's absolutely right. And uh, one, one thing I do, for example, is every semester, approximately three times I do this, instead of waiting for the evaluations at the end where it's too late to do anything for that particular cohort, on three occasions, old school hand, slips of paper, no names signed, anonymous evaluations. I simply say in an open-ended manner, what do you like about this class and what do you want to see improved in this class? Students are given of a particular day to fill it out. And here's the reason I'm mentioning this to you. Every time I have done this in every single class, and I do it in all of my classes, there's always stuff that as much as a student might have a rapport with you and like you and trust you, in the end, you are still giving them a grade. Mm. I get, call it if you will, direct advice. Uh, also affirmation on things that students do like, but also the don't likes. I have trained myself to be very open-minded on implementation. So the reaction isn't, oh, these students just don't get it. You know, that's kind of the easy way out, right? Yep. The harder thing to do is to look in the mirror uh, always the last place anybody wants to look for an explanation when things haven't gone well for them. And overall, I think it's really affected, effectively improved my teaching in an incremental way, even within a semester. The plan at the beginning, especially if you're gambling, if you're taking risks, right, and trying so-called innovative approaches, there are going to be aspects that do fail, period, and that need to be adjusted. And the students have taught me a lot along the way and always, here's, here's a point of pride for me, as each increment goes by in the semester, the anonymous evaluations become more favorable. That's because I act on the earlier rounds, right? So by the time I'm getting my evaluations at the end after one can't do anything to adjust, they're actually, I suspect, a lot more friendly than they would have been if I had ignored the students during the semester. Well, and, and in part because the students are actually thinking that those, uh, that they matter, right? That their opinions about it and that they can influence it. And so as, as you adapt and as you tweak the things as you're going along, they feel heard. So tell me a little bit about uh, the introduction you had to teaching. How did you, how did you learn how to teach? I'd say that it's a combination of an inductive and a deductive thing. I, I've given this some thought about my own formation, one might say. I would say the sort of inductive part of it 
comes from many years of just experience, like over 40 years now in the classroom and gradual sort of course correction, every class, every semester, I learned something. To be the teacher I am today, how did I develop? I would say it's a function inductively of coming to believe, and it looks like I've turned out to be right when I get back to Carl Wyman's book in a moment, that the traditional set piece lecture is not working and hasn't been working for some time. I've gradually become more oriented toward the use of different kinds of visualizations and visualization in particular in connection with popular culture. And that is a way for me to continue connecting. And it's not an easy thing to do with people who are literally less than one third of my own age. Right. So how did I develop as a teacher? The inductive thing is over the course of a long time, my classes now don't look quote unquote, stereotypical, normal, where someone outside of the academic community would say, oh, the professor stands up there for whatever it is, an hour, and they lecture. And there might be a student who asks a question during that time, or there might not. And any discussion, for those who are college graduates, they will remember this, oh, well, that takes place in a so-called discussion section. Mm -hmm. My classes don't look anything like that, and they haven't for some time. I do have discussion sections, but the actual lecture itself will include, and this is something I've learned gradually, paused opportunities for discussion, uh, strong encouragement of student participation. And that's just something that's happened and been incremental and more and more use of popular culture, everything ranging from Middle Earth to spy novels in various courses is brought in to give alternative modes of learning a chance to work. And they do, in my opinion, I think they succeed where some other things don't. Carl Wyman's science education initiative hit me uh, like a giant three-ton brick when I read it. I highly recommend his book to everyone. He's a Nobel laureate in the natural sciences. And here is a soundbite that affirms every adjustment that I'm talking about that I've made to move away from the standard approach. In his survey research that underlies his new ways of teaching science, which have been experimented with successfully on multiple campuses, here's the most shocking poll result I think you're going to see today or hear about today. When polls are taken at the beginning and end of a class in the natural sciences, such as chemistry, physics, or mathematics, students have a lower interest in the subject matter at the end than they did at the beginning. Mm. That's a big brick over the head kind of poll result that is not by obvious definition an indictment of any particular instructor. It's generally true across the board. Mm. And I would submit that for the most part, and again, no disrespect to anyone in particular, I'm aiming this at myself as well as others, if you are pursuing that traditional format, you're not connecting with cognition very well. Right. And sure enough, what he finds is you need to move away from that set piece format. Uh, active learning from the standpoint of our section actually is more about academic survival than anything else. It's fun to be creative, but we actually need to be uh, or we lose our audience. And mm -hmm. there's no time to get into Wyman's 200 page book about all of this. But suffice it to say, people communicating in fields like math or chemistry have even higher cognitive burdens on them, arguably, than we do when we say talk about, you know, Italian foreign policy, which somebody can kind of grasp at least in an intuitive way. Whereas if it's something like quantum mechanics or quantum theory, whatever, pick whatever example you like, uh, they've already got higher barriers to entry. Wyman being a, a genius, a scientific genius and a Nobel laureate, took this in a very positive direction. I was already doing 
some of the things he was telling us to do. I learned that inductively mm-hmm. and I would submit his thesis has a lot of value outside the natural sciences. So I kind of got there inductively and then I arrive at where I am and I find out that Carl Wyman kind of told me to go there. Yeah, sure. And, you know, what's interesting about that with respect to global politics is, as you say, it's a, it's a slightly different way of thinking and framing things. And so global politics in particular provides, I think, really concrete ways of entering if you can get the examples in. But what you've done, I know, in, in recent past is use those fiction world scenarios in order to be able to help make sense of both the kind of abstract theoretical stuff and practical things. Can you talk a little bit about how you use fiction stuff to make to help students understand? Yes, an example from the Middle Earth class, I have a, an introduction to IR that is subtitled The International Relations of Middle Earth. And I have a textbook with my good friend, Abby Rowain, Abigail Rowain, and it's simply called The International Relations of Middle Earth. And what we do is we use characters and storylines to reinforce the curriculum of global politics that's foundational, things like literally grammar in a, in a language one is learning. You've got to teach things whether you're a critical IR scholar or a problem solver, everybody just needs to know about things like levels of analysis, huge historical events that have shaped the discipline. For example, uh, we have a chapter on the causes of World War I in our book, Mm -hmm. in comparative perspective. This is what we did, an attempt to connect with standard curricula, but to do it in a way that will not make people's eyes glaze over. So it's, it's fascinating that the fantasy world in some ways can have more in common with certain real world events than they do with each other. That's one thing that comes out of a course like that. Yeah. Do you show the films in the class in order to be able, or clips of them? They're, they're shown in their entirety for extra credit in the evenings and students are, now this was disrupted somewhat obviously with COVID, mm. but prior to that, say back in 2019, uh, the turnout was excellent. Students would come, were far enough away from when they were filmed 20 years ago that most students now it's reached a tipping point where they've heard about the movies, Uh, but they haven't seen them previously. Years ago, when I started teaching this course, virtually everybody had seen all of the movies. So they come into it with a fresh pair of eyes. One thing we do in the textbook is we do create two appendices, one which gives enough of the story that the person can figure things out before they've had a chance to see all, all three movies, but without any real spoiler, And then the second appendix summarizes events leading up to the climactic uh, uh, conclusion in in the return of the king. So we do that. So they've got kind of a a cliff note version of the story in their hand for study purposes for both Mm -hmm. the midterm and final. A lot of students watch the movies in person uh, at the showings or alternatively ask for permission to watch them separately. And uh, they love them. Those movies are timeless. In fact, all three were nominated for Best Picture. So those of us who love the story as much as I do uh, are so pleased. And the combination of the more directive medium, so film is more directive, right, rather than reading, say, a book. So if you're Mm -hmm. reading the novels, you have a particular vision of what the characters and places are supposed to look like. The movies are more directive, but the students have had the opportunity in reading the IR textbook to connect what's in there with what they then see gradually over the course of the first month of our class. We show right. those three movies. They're seeing it with more information 
So their analysis begins to evolve too as they get more put quotes around this more data. Now, so given that, do they begin to also look for um, the same kinds of themes that you're bringing in in terms of international relations, global politics kinds of dynamics um, uh, in, in their own, do they, do they extend that on beyond those three movies or do they, do they go looking for ways in which they can include other forms of media into their analysis and their understanding about global politics things? They do. In fact, things that have been hot since then, like Game of Thrones, for example, uh, the second version of Battlestar Galactica, not the original one from the late 70s, early 80s, students will bring those things into class mm. with appropriate types of examples and begin to connect with things that otherwise might be dry as dust. So there are different variations of realism. Uh, generally speaking, if you're talking about offensive and defensive and neoclassical, uh, by now almost everybody in the room would be asleep, right? If I did that, like they don't want to think about it in the way, I would say it's analogous to pick, a, to pick something that, work, that works well. Many people I've known who've gone to medical school have to take organic chemistry. Yep. And it largely consists of grasping the nuances of carbon compounds. That's about as well as I could put it. That's just not exciting, but the person knows they have to do this to become a doctor. They must show competence in this area. In, in our context, they're not necessarily going to be using these kinds of comparisons that they make for a career objective. It's mm -hmm. actually about pure learning at that point. So probably in the sciences, there, there are greater challenges. Once you break out of the box, if you will, and allow somebody to say how, for example, uh, might Gandalf be like or not like Winston Churchill, right? That's just to throw out one example from a character virtually everybody knows in the vernacular and somebody that virtually everybody knows from world history, Winston mm -hmm. Churchill. One advantage once you start doing that, well, then, you know, somebody might put up their hand and say, let's talk about Tyrion Lannister. You know, if there are some Game of Thrones fans out there, you yeah. know who that is. And also antinomies, as in how are things different from each other, mm -hmm. while they might superficially appear to be similar, in, in what really important ways are they different from each other? And that can help to nuance understanding of concepts, say arcane things from foreign policy analysis, uh, ethnic nationalism, migration studies, international security. I could pick other sections as well that you can get that kind of thing going and use things that maybe a 20 year old audience is more likely to have seen Game of Thrones before they come in the class or pick something that's even newer and hot these days. I think once you've broken the rules, and I mean this in a good way by talking mm. about Middle Earth in the textbook, they're comfortable bringing in their own stuff. Absolutely. And of course, what you're achieving is in, in those kind of hierarchies of learning processes, you're getting them to, uh, to do analysis and to apply things. And it's not just the, the, they're getting the right answer and remembering it, but they're participating or learning to break things down in a way that gets them to be applying that curiosity in other contexts later on. It's absolutely true. And as a side point, because we've been talking mostly about Middle Earth, in the course that Yale Swerdlow and I developed, Yale deserves a shout out as the originator of the idea, teaching security and intelligence with a standard textbook by uh, Lowenthal. People use this book pretty much conventionally, his intelligence book, but we teach it with five spy novels. 
And Yale and I use the spy novels in the same way the Lord of the Rings is used in the other class. And this one is also general ed. And often in general ed settings, you have more of a challenge anyway, that students may come in with a set of expectations about what it will or won't be. As in, mm -hmm. oh, this won't be useful to my major, I'm in engineering or business, why do I need this? Often some of the students who are far away from IR in general ed classes will have the most fun and it's really good for exercising their mental muscles. In my article that I published a little while ago, about two years ago now, I think in Journal of Political Science Education, I get into the nuances of what you were talking about a moment ago, but in the context of this other class, the one that's about the spy novels. Mm -hmm. Well, and of course that's, um, especially for general education students, right? That's what you're hoping that they get out of there is some affinity for and confidence in applying ideas from the class to real world situations. It, it, they don't necessarily have to remember all the causes of World War I in order to be able to get that sense that they could dive into that complexity if they so choose later in life. That's absolutely right. And one other course I'll mention briefly, uh, it takes a research project of mine. Recall when we talked about synergy, teaching and research informing each other, um, I am director of something called the Visual International Relations Project, which very briefly creates an archive where I'm literally drawing pictures of people's articles and books, sort of a visual abstract using a particular type of box and arrow diagram. Of course, I'm teaching right now called Systemist International Relations. To your point a moment ago, students learn how to create these diagrams. They're relatively easy to learn the technique within two hours or so. They know how to draw one of these diagrams. They could actually draw a diagram of anything in their life, mm. not just somebody's book or article from international mm. relations. Uh, in one of my publications with Sarah Ganson, who's the associate director of the project, somebody who got really into it, a student on another campus, used our technique to draw his own resume or CV. He drew a picture of his own life and career. And uh, that's going to be in a chapter uh, in a book that Sarah and I have coming out and we got his permission to actually include it. So students also, and this is a huge learning point, is that I'm walking out of this room. I had to take, say, organic chemistry to become a physician. Okay, when they're walking out of my room, there's nothing like that as a deliverable, right? right. It's not like I have to learn spy novel diplomacy, IR in Middle Earth, or how to draw pictures of people's books in order to get job X, but they might have a multiplicity of applications for these things if it's done the right way. Back again to your point about a hierarchy of learning, the usual sort of literature on that. I'm trying actually to get beyond those sort of basic lower level, all familiar with the descriptive type of thing and further into the creativity where they're taking the lead themselves. Pat, this has been fascinating, very interesting stuff that I'm sure are your there's light bulbs popping all over the world uh, for the dozens of people who are actually watching this. But thank you very much for the time and for sharing that with us. Uh, I'm um, uh, so thrilled that you're getting this award because I, I uh, for the Distinguished Scholar Award from Ailey's because that, these clearly are things that make a difference and they inspire the creativity of other scholars. It's well-deserved. Thank you so much. It means an enormous amount coming from you as well, I might add that a lot of my learnings, since I haven't mentioned them yet, I've been active in Alias, you know, as long as it's been around and have been interested in teaching before that, 
I also have picked up a lot from my colleagues in, in alias, just by osmosis, I've picked up things. So I would conclude the interview by thanking you again for the invitation and in saying that this award, which I'm fortunate enough to receive, reflects my experiences both with professional colleagues and many students over a very long time, thanks to all of you. The Teaching Curve podcast is available at the Professional Resource Center of the International Studies Association, and made available through the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative. You can send feedback or suggestions for future interviews to teachingcurve at isonet.org, or follow us on Twitter at Teaching Curve. Thank you for joining us again on The Teaching Curve, and remember, learn something every time.